0: Finding contentment, next on Growing Grace. Zion, build with hands, and in this place, gotta dwell with man. Sick be in the crippled standing singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I say let this world know me by your love. Shakespeare long ago said, Now is the winter of our discontent. You know, that still applies today. For discontentment, or put another way, dissatisfaction is at epic proportion in our country. But is contentment really possible? That is contentment where it counts. In our jobs, our relationships, the things we possess. Well, we'll get some very encouraging answers today on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray, as we continue in the book of 1 Timothy, we'll find some surprising instruction that if applied will help us arrive at contentment. Beginning by reading this practical scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 1
1: through 8, here's Pastor Ed. Paul writes, let us many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, revilings, and evil suspicions. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Let's stop there and pray. Lord, we ask that you'd again speak to us from this letter written so long ago, but that we might apply it to our own lives this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Godliness with contentment. Contentment. I read this week about a man who was going through a very difficult time in his life, and he made an appointment with this pastor, and then he wrote about the appointment. He was in the middle of a complete financial collapse, his business, as well as his personal finances. When he sat down with the pastor, they prayed, and he said, I've lost everything. Oh, I'm very sorry to hear that you lost your faith, the pastor said. No, the man corrected him, I haven't lost my faith. Well then, I'm sad to hear that you've lost your character, the pastor said. "I I didn't say that, he corrected. I still have my character pastor said, well, then I'm sorry to hear that you lost your salvation. <laughs> and said, no, that's not what I said. I haven't lost my salvation. So you have your faith, your character, and your salvation. Seems to me, the pastor observed, that you've lost none of the things that really matter. I like that. I think that's a good summary. There's an old story of a Puritan that sat down to a meal, a very simple meal of just bread and water. And he bowed his head to pray, and he said, all this, and Jesus too? Hmm, (laughs) thankfulness, contentment, satisfaction with our life. Well, that's a rare person who thinks that way and acts that way and speaks that way. In fact, most of us are surrounded by dissatisfied, discontent people, and sometimes it rubs off. American historian Arthur Schlesinger wrote that our society is marked by inextinguishable discontent. (laughs) Dissatisfaction with life is at epidemic levels in America. Now, for most of us, it started really early in life. You know, you ask for something, you get it for your birthday or Christmas or something. I remember the, the bicycle I got. It was just like the perfect bicycle until the kid down the street got one with a speedometer, and it was lighter and faster, and, and somehow mine was a piece of junk just a few days later, right? And it goes, it follows you through life. You get to high school, then, you know, cool car. If you had a VW Bug, it was the coolest thing until the guy parked his new Corvette right next to you in the parking lot, and then you weren't happy anymore. Then it was about the right boyfriend or the right girlfriend, and. And that still carries on through adulthood. I talk to people a lot who think, if I could just meet the right person, then everything would be great in my life. Contentment would be mine. Hmm. So there's a lot of things out there that look like they'll make us happy. Fastest computer, fastest boat, nicest house, nicest neighborhood, the list goes on and on. We are surrounded by dissatisfaction is not just a recent American problem. In fact, it goes all the way back to the garden, just outside the garden. You remember Cain and Abel. Cain was dissatisfied with what he would brought, and so he killed his brother Abel, and so on, and so on. So today, the continuing dissatisfaction in our nation is actually an industry that's avowed goal is to make you dissatisfied. That, in fact, the advertising industry is geared to make us all dissatisfied with whatever it is they're trying to sell for whatever company or person it is, that uh, you're not happy with your refrigerator or your stove or a thousand other things that clothes you wear that somehow this. The whole industry is built around making you and I discontent with what we have and to covet whoops, sin, anything that anybody else has that looks like what they're selling. So that dissatisfaction drives very serious consequences. It leads people to max out their credit card. It leaves men and women to leave a decades-long marriage because somehow they feel dissatisfied, at least at the moment. Paul the Apostle is writing to Timothy about this 2,000 years ago, so we're not surprised. But much of what he says here flies in the face of all that Americans think and are told all the time. He wrote in Philippians chapter 4, I don't say this out of need. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Wow. Can you say that? I'm pretty sure I'm working on that one, but I'm not there yet that I'm always content no matter what the circumstances are. What a challenge from Paul. Paul knew that his contentment lied not in what he had, but in whose he is, who he is belonging to, who owns him. His God, his Lord, his master, his ruler. And so he found contentment in knowing that what he couldn't see in front of him, God was already there and already preparing him for it. We've been studying through this letter to the young pastor in Ephesus, Timothy. He has uh, a difficult assignment. He's in a a large Greek, Greco-Roman capital of Asia Minor. And it is a whole society built on sensuality, built on material things. And we have seen Paul working through different relationship issues with this young pastor to help him uh, find the right balance in his first church. In this section, he talks about contentment a lot, contentment and work, the first two verses, and then contentment and godliness, godlikeness, three through six, and then contentment and things we own, possessions, the last two verses. So prepare to question some of this. Don't be surprised if you go, what? What does he mean by that? Verse one. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine, his word, the Bible may not be blasphemed. So the Greek word for bondservants is one we know, doulo or doulai, which is literally slaves. So the NIV correctly translates this, all who are under the yoke of slavery. Slavery was common practice in the Roman Empire. Conservative historians place the slave population in major cities to be about one third. So in Ephesus, where Timothy was, a third of the people that lived there were slaves. In the second century, Rome had a million people, a huge metropolitan area. In fact, it wouldn't be equaled again until the 1800s. But a million people in Rome so if a third of them were slaves, that's 333,000 people in the city of Rome, were slaves. The majority, the majority source of slaves were the Roman wars of conquest. As the Roman Empire was expanding, then soldiers who lost from armies other than Rome were brought back as captives, paraded through the city. We've talked about the triumphal entry of the generals into Rome and then they were made slaves. But the danger of having soldiers who were trained being a slave is that they would gather together and try and form uprisings, which happened from 140 BC to about 70 BC. There were all these slave wars that were going on, servile wars they were called, in Rome. Now we know about that because we have Hollywood to inform us. Spartacus really was a slave who led a rebellion against Rome and almost succeeded, led to thousands of slaves being crucified along the Appian Way, but that was slavery. Augustine expressed grief over the large amount of slaves in North Africa. They were in the early part of the 5th century, so it went on for a long time. But the other source of slaves was debt, debtors' prisons or debtors who owed a great deal of money, both children and adults then were sold into slavery. There was another source of slaves that's interesting because by this time, this is about 66 AD, slavery was being viewed differently in Rome. And in fact, slaves who had been indentured and then were freed, called freed men or freed women, were automatically given citizenship. And so that caused a lot of people to come and sell themselves into slavery in Rome so that they could get citizenship. The only other way to get it if you were not born in Rome was to or a Roman a city was to pay a huge a ransom, a bribery basically for citizenship. So that's the world and it's good to take it apart a little bit so you understand what Paul is saying here to these people. Slaves everywhere and Paul gives them something interesting. He says, count their own masters worthy of all honor. Hmm. Paul's concerned that his followers portray are a good example, are a witness of who Jesus Christ is. After all, he came to serve, not to be served. That the creator of the universe became man and then served everyone. You remember him washing the feet of his disciples at the Last Supper? So. He expects us to act like him.
0: Thanks for listening to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray, who's giving us the background for the command to provide service that's worthy of a Christian. Now with more on the challenge in our calling to a life of service, from 1 Timothy 6, here's Pastor Ed.
1: I reminded you a few weeks back that as you come into this building, you can't come into this room here without going through a door that has a little sign over the top of it. It's purposefully small. The first time you walk in, you probably didn't see it, but as you come more often, look up, and it says, slave or servant's entrance. To remind us all, myself included, that God has called us to a life of service and that's the picture that's going on here now as a new believer i was troubled very much by these first two verses because they seemed to condone somehow slavery they didn't outrightly denounce it and social justice was a big deal to me as a young man i thought that was really an important concept but The Bible does not condone slavery any more than it condones adultery when it mentions King David having had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then killing her husband. You see, Scripture took me a while to grasp this, particularly in the Old Testament, just clearly portrays reality, what was going on. It's not recommending these things. It may list all of Solomon's wives, but it's not saying, this is a great idea. Do this, guys. It'll be wonderful for you. I guarantee you it is not. (laughs) Just think of a thousand mother-in-laws, you know, there's just a whole bunch of problems with that concept. That'll get me in trouble. Mm -mm -mm. I better stick to my notes here. There's no defense of slavery anywhere in Scripture. As the New Testament was being written, in fact, major changes had come, were beginning to take place. Why? Because of Christian teaching, because of this teaching, because when... Slaves treated everyone with respect, everyone with honor, it began to show. And Romans began to look for Christian slaves, knowing that they would serve them well. Now, these, this first verse is about unbelieving masters, if you will. The second verse is about believing ones. So, Paul wrote to the Galatians, you'll remember, Galatians 3.28, In Christ there is neither bond nor free all grounds level at the cross. And he laid the foundation for a reaction that would carry through the Roman Empire until early in the fifth century it was radically changed, that in fact slavery was abolished. His doctrine, that his doctrine, that the Scripture, that the name of God and Scripture may not be blasphemed what Jesus said. The good news, Paul's point, Simple, he urges slaves to serve their masters well so that they will present a good testimony to the ones who own them and to others that they might be saved. That they too, slaves, were called to be a witness. That God has given us this astounding privilege of being an ambassador for him in the world no matter how low your position may be or how high it may be in your own mind. So, Paul says that we should... Do, or ask for the best, for the cause of Christ, that Jesus might be lifted up. Philippians 1.12, Paul said of his own life, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And there's his first priority. Paul had no trouble serving anyone he met, so that the gospel, the good news, might be furthered. And the modern equivalent, employee-employer relationships. At work, if you're lazy, it's not a good witness. Your boss is not impressed. If you're disrespectful to your boss, well, he's not a believer. That's the first verse. That's what Paul is saying, that you, in fact, represent Christ to everybody, believer or unbeliever, well. Verse 2. Sure, it's quiet in here. And those who have believing masters, so here's the second half, let them not despise them because they're brethren, because they're brothers and sisters in the Lord, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and loved by God and you. Teach and exhort these things. These things are important, tell others about it. So if your master is a Christian, That is no excuse for being disrespectful. In other words, don't expect special privileges from your boss because he or she is a believer. And in fact, it should be uh, you're the best employee that there is because you're not serving them, you're serving God. And you're trying to represent him the best that you can. Now, Paul is not recommending slavery. In fact, he says the opposite in 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Were you a slave when you were called? When you were saved, were you a slave? Don't let it trouble you. Don't let it bother you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So he's not recommending slavery. He's just saying that if you're there, then do it well. And use that opportunity to share Christ with others. Don't take advantage of that Christian brother who is your boss. Witness on your lunchtime, if you're going to witness, Before and after work, not while you're on the clock, right? While you're working, you are a witness. And when you're not, people are still watching you. If it's possible, make money for the boss and for his company, her company. That's what a good believer would do. Okay, I told you it'd fly in the face of a lot of thinking here in America. God is saying the gospel is the most important thing. Or more clearly, it's all about eternity. Verse 3, now contentment and godliness. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and according to Scripture doctrine, which accords with godliness. Paul returns to a theme we've seen several times. The word appears 11 times in this letter, godliness, godlikeness, being like God. And he uses it against false teaching. Okay, so back in 1 Timothy 3.3, Paul said there were false teachers there. And actually, he's using the same word here. Teaches otherwise is a false teacher. So, does it speak of contentment? Does not consent to wholesome words, but discontent words. That They will not. They'll teach things other than the words of Jesus Christ. Now, this is going somewhere that impacts our life very much today. Listen to what people are saying. People who come and want to teach you I have them come to my house on Saturday morning from cults, and and they have a certain set of books and guidelines, and they want to tell you what's wrong with what you believe. And this is the sort of thing that's happened in Ephesus. In fact, it would appear that they were once Christians, or at least part of the church, and then they left it to form these cults in Ephesus. It's the first record of cults, and Paul is speaking against it here. Be aware of anyone who teaches something other than what Scripture teaches. And if you listen carefully, it will happen. You'll see it. You'll understand it. You'll notice some things about them. Verse 4, that person who's teaching this way is proud, but they actually know nothing. Obsessed with disputes and arguments, they like to argue, from which comes these four forms of strife envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. Okay, he's proud. I love the New English Bible translation of those two words. It says, he is a pompous ignoramus. <laughs> That's scripture. Just add that to your vocabulary. It works really good. The, the word Proud is a tufo in the Greek language, and it literally means to envelop with smoke. You know, blow a lot of smoke, we say, inflated with self-conceit. Proud people are like smoke, Paul says. They irritate others, and they seldom produce any benefits like light or heat, just smoke. They like to argue. In fact, it literally says word battles. Dispute means idle speculation. They have too much time on their hand, and they're wondering about subjects that don't matter. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I don't know the answer. Don't ask me afterwards. Somebody did. I don't know. It's a point of a rhetorical question that can't be answered. Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? (laughs) What? (laughs) These are arguments over words and idle speculations. Then Paul says that they're spiritually sick and they need to get back in line. Okay, so these people who love to argue, and you will run into them, are in fact uninformed. They're not paying attention. They don't take the time to study the original languages and what Paul meant, the context it was written in, and so they're just out of touch with reality. I have a a lot of conversations with scientists who are very argumentative about religion. They consider, for the most part, religion to be against science, even though that's not true. And because they're uninformed, they will argue and create websites against Christians. I'm having a discourse with one right now. Did you notice my blood pressure go up? And a brilliant man, but a brilliant idiot. And there's plenty of them around. (laughs) I hope he's watching. I'll, I'll hear about that one. They're not paying attention, right?
0: Today on Growing Grace, we brought you a portion of Pastor Ed's study in First and Second Timothy. For a CD copy of today's message, call 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. Or listen online at thepackinghouse.org. And look for us on iTunes as well. We can hook you up with many more resources to help you grow in grace when you visit thepackinghouse.org, like Pastor Ed's devotional. Speaking of resources, today we'd like to make special mention of Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, authored by renowned surgeon Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey. Together they explore the human body and uncover statements that God has made about our bodies. They point out that the human body is like a window into the very structure of God's creation and a testament to God's glory. This month, we'll send this to those of you who support Grow in Grace with a donation of any amount. You might think of it as our way of saying thanks. Please remember that your gifts help us to bring Pastor Ed's teachings to the radio every day. To make a year-end contribution, go online at thepackinghouse.org or call 844-77-GRACE. And it's a real blessing when we hear back from our listening audience, whether it's a word of affirmation or a comment related to the study, a question or a prayer request. We want to hear from you. Drop us an email today. Our email address is packinghouseradio.org at AOL.com. That's Packinghouse Radio at AOL.com. And then join us next time as together we grow in grace through a study in 1st and 2nd Timothy with Pastor Ed Ray. May God richly bless you. This program is brought to you by the Packinghouse Christian Fellowship in Redlands. Side, and in this place, gotta dwell with man Sick be and the crippled stand Singing hallelujah My kingdom built with the blood of my son Selfless
1: sacrifice for everyone Faith, hope, love and harmony I said let this world
0: know me by your love